Hey folks, it's John from A's for Alcoholic again. Uh, today's conversation is with Sarah Tolmash. She is a sober comedian. She's been sober for 12 years. And I found her on Instagram doing a bit about for her high bottom with Bud Light that cracked me up. And again, you know, it comes up over and over the importance that it need not be a devastating fall to find your way to sobriety, at least something that works for you. We talked about the importance of our 12-step programs and um, a lot of heavier stuff too, but also just that we all come at it from different angles and different ways and different walks of life. And yet in this circle of sobriety there and, and alcoholism, there are so many fundamental shared realities and relatable moments. And I think that is one of the most important things I got from our conversation today. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Sarah Tolmash. Sarah, thank you so much for doing this. <clears throat> it's nice to meet yeah. you. Um, you too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I don't, I kind of, the reason that I, how I found you and, and why I wanted to have you on the podcast was this bit you did about your <clears throat> quote unquote bottom, right? Your, yeah. your rock bottom, not being a, a low bottom, but being a high bottom. And I'm not asking you to repeat the joke. And I also don't want to butcher it, but um, it's basically, I think it was something to the effect of, I just was having too many Bud Lights. Yeah. It's just, <clears throat> yeah. I just drank a lot of Bud Lights. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, of course that was a joke. I did have some stuff, you know, like moments where I'm like, you know, I would wish I wouldn't, but I'd never had like drunk driving. I never had a DUI, but some people got upset about that joke on TikTok Cause they're like, this is, you know, not AA is not all like those horrific stories. And you're like, no, that's a fair point. I'm just saying that I just feel like drinking Bud Light seems comedically <laughs> not like cool or edgy, you know, but I'd like to, I also think it emphasizes and some people got the joke of like, hey, you don't need a really low bottom to think that you have a problem. And I think that's an excellent point. It just wasn't working for me anymore. Right. So so let me ask you this, like traveling back in time, where, what was the first experience you had with alcohol or with drinking, whether it be with yourself or or parents or, you know, in your in your life? Sure. Um, well, I've always known that alcoholism has run in our family. My grandfather, obviously he had it, not obviously nobody knows that. Um, and my dad had to deal with it. And I, my parents, they drink, but I would never consider them heavy drinkers. They would mm -hmm. have like a glass of wine with their meal or like a gin and tonic occasionally, but it, nothing that I would ever be like, oh, it was really hard uh, living with him, I felt like they managed their alcohol pretty well. Um, so every now and then we could have like a sip of beer and we thought it was fun, but I never thought anything of it, but I did always have in the back of my mind that I should be careful with this, knowing that it runs in our family. And I kind of, mm -hmm. I didn't really enjoy beer in high school. Like I didn't like it, but for some reason I managed to push through and you know, just being in the rooms and hearing other people, that is a sign of alcoholism to just like not like something and just keep doing it, like not liking the taste of it. But I liked the way I felt like I was fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, like I was I got out of my shell. I would be probably considered a little bit shy. But once I had a few, like maybe like the placebo effect of me thinking that because I was having a beer, I was more social. Sure. I mean, I think that that's definitely, I mean, I was also very, uh, I would probably, I was shy, but also I, I acted out a lot. Yeah. So it was not like I was social or gregarious or had a whole lot of friends, but I certainly would act out as a, as a kid. Um, and certainly in high school. Right. And then, you know, with, 
and the, the, the booze there was yeah so when you talk about the placebo effect i can definitely remember times where we only had like six beers between 10 people or something you're like oh i'm catching a buzz this is yeah fun. <laughs> um and so you you drank in high school but never i mean were there you like you said there were no duis there was no there was no damage there was no trouble no at that point i think in high school it hadn't set in that this was an issue yet mm -hmm. just because i just wasn't like into it but i would have to say i remember smoking my first cigarette when i was like maybe 14 or 15 and being like oh my god where has this been my entire life <laughs> like i loved mm -hmm. it i didn't have that feeling of like coughing i liked the ritual of it. Um, I just thought it was fun and I liked it. And then um, I think that would be the first inclination of like addiction. The other one is, this is really weird to bring up, but I was a huge thumb sucker, huh. uh, which is real like embarrassing. And uh, I did it probably longer than you should have. And I realized uh, as soon as I quit thumb sucking it was around the same time that I started smoking cigarettes so it was just kind of weird that those <laughs> and what age was this like probably around 14 like I knew to hide it like so I would do mm -hmm. you know I remember my mom picking me up from school and then me sliding in the back seat and then directly enjoying like and going for the thumb and now it's so foreign to me like I'll try to revisit and see if I like it. And then I'm like, it doesn't hit the way that it used to when I was a kid. And it's interesting that these, the behaviors around, around alcohol, around cigarettes, that you were exhibiting these behaviors and indulging in these behaviors your entire childhood then around thumb Absolutely. sucking, right? Hiding it, yeah. knowing that it was something that would be admonished or you, you were made to feel ashamed of. Yeah. And you know, it's the weird thing when I reflect back is that I was, my family never dealt with it. It was never a huge confrontation of like, Hey, we should probably really work on you. Let's get to the bottom of this and like work mm -hmm. on it. It was just kind of like, maybe she'll outgrow it. And I did, but it really, I outgrew it because I went into another addiction. And I would probably say that's probably the best summary of dealing of how my family hmm. deals with issues is just ignoring it ignoring it yes yeah. yes did you have you ever have you ever gotten into why the thumb sucking was was an issue I mean is that something that you've talked to anybody I, about or I've brought it up in therapy but nobody really digs in deeper about mm. it I don't obviously it happened from a really young age and it was the thing that made me feel very like comforting. Um, but I can't tell you if there was a moment that triggered it. I don't, cause you, I feel like when you're a kid, you just do it normally. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. like, but most kids like kind of grow out of it and don't feel that need anymore. Like my sister was a finger sucker but she like she would do it like this which I've seen kids do that one and she like outgrew it within a norm like yeah. a normal age yeah I just I have to I have to imagine you know when I hear you say this and we talk about um replacing one addiction for another and there's always something you know we've heard the phrase oral fixation or I have this for me it's a lot of times overeating in a very like snacking like I love to make big bowls of popcorn even though I'm not hungry and maybe it's the salt and the and the savoriness but also it's it has something to do with the mastication I feel like and like the constant use of my mouth and so I'm always curious about um what that where that comes from and if I am what am I indulging really right is it yeah so, Hmm. I have no idea. It's never hmm. been, I've looked it up online and I don't even see any like huge hmm. breakthroughs with it of like why right. certain people are doing thumb sucking. Hmm. So, so the, the cigarettes were an epiphany. You were like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. I liked that feeling. I think, I think of um, my addictions are obviously 
a way of avoiding maybe a feeling or just being with yourself. Cause you mm-hmm. can always like go and have a cigarette. My, and then my new one now with not drinking. And I'm, I started it this week is social media. So I've stopped what I call it scrolling, mm-hmm. like just mindless scrolling. And so I've been doing that. And I feel like um, that's kicked up some uncomfortableness. So when the, the urge to sit down and scroll, you will put the phone away and then yeah, just, I try to read or I got, I've got, I bought paints and I bought crochet this week. And then I have a guitar that I've been doing YouTube, uh, tutorials on how to play certain songs. Like I'm trying to do everything and anything, but I think the thing is when I read about all this, like not doing addictions is just like sitting by yourself. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that's hard. Well, we've all been sitting by ourselves in one way or another over the last 18 months, right? I mean, right. regardless of where you're at or what you've been doing. Um, and I know that it's definitely the scrolling has amped up for me too. And I can, I see myself in the middle of it. Yeah. Like, just stop this. Like, there's no, you're not going to find anything new on Twitter, right? No. And you feel that feeling of like, like eating too much candy when I've been online too much. It makes me want to be like, ugh, and then throw my phone across the room of like, what am I doing? This is awful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've always thought, I've always felt like, um, and I think this is a trap. I think a lot of people get into where I feel like I can sort of outsmart the algorithm or I can sort of curate my, my Instagram feed or my for you page on TikTok to be something positive or fun, or I can hearken back to some early internet age where it's just cat videos and, you know, yeah. silly animation <laughs> that's really badly done. <clears throat> and it, it doesn't work because I'm constantly looking for like, what is, why do I want to look at people I disagree with? Is it because yes. I feel superior? I feel right. I feel righteous and I go, you are so wrong and it feels so good to laugh at you. And I'm just sitting here by myself, right? Yeah, I definitely think uh, like uh, anger or reveling in like uh, that feeling is an addiction in itself. I I have that problem too of like, sometimes I feel like, you know, when I try to make a joke out of this, but it doesn't really hit well on stage but like, you know, in YouTube where they're like, here's some videos that you may like, I'm like, why are they should do videos? Like, here's something that you're really going to hate. Like they should offer that because sometimes Mm -hmm. you're you're like, that's really what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm I'm looking at just watching something that riles me up and gets me like, oh, this is disgusting. You people disgust me and I'm so (laughs) much better than you. Right. And so, and, and I've kind of come and I thought that I could somehow game the system, but I'm just as susceptible as everyone else. And I was like, oh God, here I am doing it again. I'm like actively in my mind before I even open up my phone, going to look for something that's going to make me feel angry or in another word, resentful. Yeah. And then I have to deal with those resentments and having arguments in my head with imaginary people that I, that I don't know. Oh yeah. I mean, I feel like there, I've caused more chaos in my mind. I know there's a, there's a lot of great quotes about that. Like the only problems that I've had have never happened. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, and going back to drinking um, for that, just we, so in high school, you're smoking and you're drinking and it's, it's relatively fine and fun and there's nothing really damaging. Enough. Yeah. Um, and so is there a point or does it, does it progress with the, with the Bud Lights or is there ever any sort of like, oh gosh, when does that come up that you're like, I really need to do something about this? Well, I think it was around maybe when I was just at 21, I, I think graduating high school was really rough for me. I didn't really know what I wanted to do do with my life and so it was just kind of this like aimlessly kind of 
you know, trying to do community college, but I had no goal in mind. I didn't even know what my degree would be in. Um, but I liked partying and I, you know, at first it's so innocent. Like even Mm -hmm. you're not even realizing your hangovers are like awful. You're just like, this is part of the game. And like, yeah. I was, it was never, I never was starting to feel bad about it. And then it started when, uh, you know, I'd be at a party and like, I'm the only one that's barfing. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like that, you were like, nobody else yes. is doing this. <laughs> and I realized it was kind of starting to be like that. And then it started to be a thing when all my friends were starting to like, have goals and like move in a direction that felt healthy. And then my days were just spent waiting mm-hmm. until the night happened so yeah. I could go drink. And I just felt like I was becoming this loser that I couldn't get out. And yeah. I think that was the first time that I was realizing I'm not, I'm not doing my life like other people healthy people are. Um, and I've also was just kind of like my relationships were starting to be horrific. Um, just like not the best people. Obviously I didn't have like self-esteem of being with people that were, I felt like I deserved to be with. Mm-hmm. Um, just I'm trying to think, or yeah, just like stuff like that, where I just felt like I wasn't going anywhere. And then it was just 10 years of that. And then I felt like stand up was going to help me because I felt like that was a direction. But then I was in a world of like that just catered to drinking. I was hanging out with people that were drinking. My job was at night and we were incur- like, it felt like you were encouraged to be fucked up all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's not only, I, I was going to say that the trope of the alcoholic comic it's not only a trope, it's a real reality. It is. And then that, but then that's your reality. But then now when I'm sober and I've been sober for about 12 years, it's mm-hmm. you realize I barely know a lot of comics that are fucked up. And I think because now I'm in a world where uh, the, the level that I'm at or whatever, it's because everyone's working really hard and they don't have time to right. have that be that lifestyle you have you have changed the 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 people you're around in that business yeah. they did exist at a at a certain time i imagine in the beginning it didn't seem like that that those types of people existed in that world absolutely right? like there were so many times thinking about quitting where you're like i don't even know who i'd hang out with and now it's just like crazy to me to be like i don't even know who i would drink with i really don't know nor would it be somebody that i would be interested in having drinks with right right um so so in the in the stand-up comedy and again i don't know but i i was a bartender for 12 years so i'm pretty well aware of what happens yeah. in bars and um, the majority of comedy is happening in bars or at yeah. least it was pre-pandemic um but how does one in the transition Right. So you're, 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 you're like doing this for 10 years. You're, you're, you know, working on your craft and, and drinking at the same time and, and feeling the effects of that not working to your benefit as best, you know, optimally. Um, how does one navigate the transition when you're like, I think I need to quit and I'm still in this, this area? Well, I guess like, I, I think around 21, 22. So I was going to therapy and it was really just kind of like thinking that was just depression. And then I remember I had a, a night, I probably, I call them, they're just benders. Like I wasn't a wake up and drink in the morning, but mm-hmm. I would be like, go, I could go several days, but during those several days, I would obviously be obsessing about when, you know, I'm going to go mm-hmm. this day and this hang out with these people and I'll figure it out. Uh, so I was just thinking about it nonstop. And then when I would drink, I just couldn't stop. It would go to a blackout. And I had several of those. And one was just, I, the next day, you know, when you get your, that hangover with anxiety. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like the worst. Um, I ignored phone calls. Yeah. And my dad thought 
um, I had died, <laughs> you know, because Jesus. I wasn't responding yeah. and I, I felt so bad. So, um, sorry. That's okay. Sorry, I'm just like, I forget this because you gone. But you feel bad for like causing someone that you love to like hurt. Um, and so I knew that I had a problem and then I was going to therapy and I told told her about it. And then I had, you know, she was like, that was the first time that anybody was ever like, oh, you're an alcoholic. And it was hard to hear. And I was still going to like every now and then I had a friend that he was a bartender. He would, I would go to 12 step meetings with him. And then mm-hmm. I was still grappling. Like I kind of knew it like, okay. Yeah. But at the same time, I thought I could cheat it. Do you know what I mean? Like moderation or uh, <laughs> maybe I'll just stick to wine. Cause that's mm-hmm. healthy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Or I'll just drink on the weekends and then it would just be like that. So I would have like these cycles of thinking I was doing really well, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, that went on for 10 years. And then when I moved to New York, I just realized if I was going to pursue stand up the way I wanted to, I couldn't do it. And I wanted to be like, I also wanted to be married and have a family. And I realized you can't be healthy in a relationship if you're hiding your drinking all the time. And it was, I just, after a while, I realized it was all or nothing. Like I can't have a drink. (laughs) Yeah. There's no moderation. No, I did the, I did the wine thing for a while. I remember thinking like, I've got it. I think I've got it figured out. Like it's the, the Pinot Grigio. And if I just have the right amount and it's about a bottle and a half, but then, and like, I had this whole program and I was always hung over and I was always tired and I was always half drunk and never as drunk as I wanted to be. Yeah. Right. And, and then, yeah, exactly. And then I always think too, like, if I could take a pill that lets me have the right amount of drinks, mm-hmm. does that sound good to me? And I always think, no, I want 10 of everything. Mm-hmm. I don't want, I don't want to have two Bud Lights. I want to have 10 of them. And I want to drink until I can't feel, you know, like till I'm passed out. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. having the appropriate amount does not sound fun to me. No, not at all. I'd be like, no, that's. <laughs> What do you, you're just gonna, I mean, you know, and I would, I would see people who would leave glasses of wine half empty. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, that was my thought was like, you, you're leaving it empty. Like that's, that's insanity. Where in reality, I was the one who was insane because I was thinking about finishing their, the other half of this glass of wine that somebody had left on the table on the bar. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, that it's so funny how, or like sick your mind is and you don't even think about it that you're like I would push through whatever Mm -hmm. I'm feeling just so because I can't just leave an empty or like a half drunk glass of anything yeah yeah and I still I have memories as a kid of my dad doing this you know going out to dinner and stuff like that and you know it was always um like you didn't have to finish food but we certainly could not leave any alcohol on the table because that would be wasteful yeah and that sort of that that mentality and it's like i'm like oh yeah we were sitting in that booth and there he was chugging back the drinks you know and um it's like and me just trying to figure out where i had gotten it from and it's like it's exactly right there that's where you yeah. got it from um and so so can you can you talk a little bit about being a like a comedian in that realm in the transition period where you're trying to find your footing at being sober? I mean, is that difficult? Were you able to extricate yourself easily? Well, I felt like the first month was weird because I remember the first month I wasn't going to a 12-step program yet. And I was in that state of mind thinking that once I quit drinking, that my life would miraculously 
get amazing. And mm-hmm. I was getting kind of like resentful because I was just having a really hard time leaving my apartment and I got horrifically lonely. And the weird thing too, is I thought when I quit drinking that I would kind of like chill out on the smoking cigarettes, but all I was doing was just kind of like chain smoking at home. And I had a friend who knew that I was just quit, who was going to a 12 step program. He reached out to me and he's like, you just, just come and meet me. And so I went and then it got me out of the apartment. And then I started going to meetings on a regular basis. So meetings were really great for me, especially I didn't get to do the 90 and 90 that everybody recommends, but I did do a lot. I would go several times a week and then I would fellowship and it was fortunate enough that I had a job that I, I only, I bartended at the time mm-hmm. as my day job. So I only worked three days a week. So I had a lot of time to uh, go to meetings and fellowship right after. Um, and those really, really helped me. I made friends. I made friends with people I'm still friends with today. And it created a world where I was social and I was hanging out with sober people. But then the hard part is a lot of comedy and also just in life in general, in any work situation, networking plays a huge part in getting your jobs. And I'm not saying that you go out and make friendships, fake friendships just to get better in your life, but it was even just hard for me to go to a party. I didn't want to hang out with drunk people. I didn't want to be around a lot. I don't like a lot of people. I find it too much. Right. I like one-on-ones. I like a group of maybe three to four at the most. And I, uh, where we're all having a group conversation. I like that, but like getting stuck talking to somebody that you don't enjoy is absolutely horrific. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. I've been there. Uh-huh. I can't <laughs> handle it. And I feel like they know, and I'm trying to be as polite as I can, mm-hmm. but I really want out of that conversation and I don't know how to get out of it. And then also when you don't smoke, you can't be like, I'm going to go have a cigarette or. Right. Right. So you, <laughs> and you quit cigarettes as well. Yeah. I managed to quit smoking about 10 months later out of that as well. That's a hard one too. I, I, so I had a very similar, my first month, no meetings, no nothing, white knuckling it, eating excessively, sitting in my room whenever I wasn't at work. Um, but then I quit smoking, I don't know, probably like five or six months on a bet. Like we're just Mm -hmm. not going to smoke for the month of October. And I made it through the 30 days, but, um, and then I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll try for another week. And that was always my thing with sobriety too, was, well, I'll just do this for another week, you know, and then I'll yeah. be fine. And once I get everything sorted out, then I can go back to it. I just need to get, like, take a little break, you know, and then obviously meetings and sponsors and fellowship and all of that stuff. But um, I found the cigarettes were, I don't want to, maybe they were just made harder because I was sober and dealing with that on top of it. But there was like, I felt like this little worm would be burrowing its in my brain, like burrowing a hole in my brain. And the only thing that would stop it was a cigarette. And like, it was really challenging because I would smoke everywhere, including like in the car while I was driving. And so I'd have these little sparks of like, I need a cigarette. I need a cigarette. I need a cigarette. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it, how difficult it was for you, but it was awful for me. Yeah, no, it's horrific. <laughs> it's horrific. I thought one, cause you're like it, cause it's so in the scheme of things, it's pretty innocent, mm-hmm. you know, like you could be doing a lot worse to your body, but that one was, it's weird because I, when I finally managed to get probably like 30 days under without smoking, I didn't realize I actually it was the first time I actually felt pure joy and euphoria. And I figured out why I was happy is because I was not under the prison of addiction anymore. Because remember how, like, it takes up so much mental real estate 
with even with smoking because you'd be like fuck I'm going to a party tonight and everybody's like a non-smoker or uh I don't cigarettes are $13 here at the time and you know I can't I, I can smoke a few there. Like you, you're just thinking about it nonstop of like, how am I going to get to have a cigarette? Uh, is it going to be weird? Are they going to be mad at me if I smoke a cigarette? Cause a lot of people are like, hate smokers. They despise mm-hmm. us. And I think mm-hmm. it's unfair. <laughs> well, and I, but also, you know, and I, 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 and I smoke cause I would do the same thing where I'm like, do I have enough for tonight? And do I need to get some more? Maybe I should have a couple of packs. And if I saw them on sale somewhere, I'm like, Ooh, I better stock up. I'll throw one in the car. We'll keep a couple in the freezer, you know, and all that stuff. Um, and I understand like why people, I mean, I try not to be judgmental of people who smoke cigarettes anymore. It's been six years since I've smoked. Um, but that being said, I will certainly go out of my way to walk around you because I don't want to be in that anymore. Like I won't, I won't make a show of it. I won't like cough in your face obviously not anymore these days but um it's a little bit different but you know what i mean like i will definitely be like oh they're smoking i'm gonna go walk over this way to get wherever i need to go yeah you know but there is there's it's it's pretty gross (laughs) i know and it's rare it is but like i don't know it's weird Mm -hmm. i have i go back and forth with it because Mm -hmm. sometimes i'll look at somebody on a smoke break and i'm like god they look so depressed that feeling of just like they're just staring off into space and Mm -hmm. they're just like by themselves and it they don't look cool but then you go over to europe and like paris and everybody just does it casually and they look so cool and look like they're having a great time that you're like oh that's when i i'm like that looks great i want to do that right yeah yeah i mean don't get me wrong the allure is still there and like so what I have done recently uh, in, in the last year or whatever is whenever sometimes I get a little bit of an urge or I think it's going to be cool is I will pantomime and I will do the whole and I'll even ash out and stuff like that, like out the window. And um, I think it kind of helps a little bit. It probably looks ridiculous. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I, I'll tell you the way that I quit smoking was I read Alan Carr the easy way to quit smoking. And I cannot emphasize how great this book was Mm -hmm. because he didn't shame you for your addiction. He made, it was basically a very, he encourages you to smoke while you read it. And it makes you think about your cigarette while you're smoking it. And you do begin to realize that you're not, you don't enjoy this. And he, the way he reprograms your mind is so mm-hmm. I think very, very effective. And there were certain things he's like, your body only has the addiction for it. The physical, it's pretty short. I want to say it's a day to three days. Like you can clear the physical addiction. And then from there it's mental, which is the hardest, right? the hardest part. Um, And then a lot of it, it was like, you can just breathe and know that that feeling will pass. And it generally, it does pass. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've been very, I feel like it's like, it really is when you talk about the prison of addiction and that constant mental space that it takes up and thinking about it all the time. And it's like, what a relief. It is. It was, I didn't realize how tiring it was. And I was surprised that like anti-smoking campaigns don't focus on the mental part of smoking rather than the shaming of, cause I don't really feel like shaming people is an effective approach or a scare tactic, but the thing of like, your life just becomes way more simple when you don't have stuff like that yeah. to deal with. Yeah. And things are complicated enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> For sure. So when you started going to 12 step programs at the, is it the behest of your friend, um, the bartender? Is that what Uh, you were saying? Well, I've had so many people probably in my my life, because I've probably been talking about addiction forever. So I I had the bartender in Houston. He was sober, newly sober and was like, here, just come to a few meetings and see if it's for you. And then, um, then later I met a guy that was eight years sober. And he knew that that was something I was 
grappling with. And he never was, no, they never pushed me in. They were just like, just, you know, check it out. And so I would go, he was the one that reached out when he knew that I was white knuckling it. So that having those kind of, those people in my life was very beneficial. So did you, did you fall in love with it right away? Were you resentful of it? Did you feel like you belonged or that you didn't want it? Like, what was your, what was that, the process of getting into it? Well, that, I don't know. It's weird because I didn't come in with, uh, I came in, I feel like I came in kind of open-minded, but I'm always very skeptical of things, especially like, I don't know. I grew, grew up like atheist pretty much like non-religious no no strong higher power um and so doing a program like that it's very a lot you know the first step is like you know god and all that stuff and Mm -hmm. um but i as soon as to accept god is how i feel who you know a higher power and like realizing things are beyond my control i understood that as a concept but it did make me skeptical going in. And then, um, so I, and I worried about this because I remember getting a, uh, a spon- sponsor and I told her, I was like, I'm, I don't have the fanaticism that a lot of people have here. Like I would go to these meetings and people would just be like, you know, all about it in your face you know, trying to get numbers nonstop. And I was just a little bit reserved and just like came back and sat and just listened and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe shared on occasion. And I shared that with her and she's like, I don't know if this is good. She's like that. Don't worry. It's fine to have those feelings. And a lot of those people that have that fanaticism tend to bow out pretty fast as well. There there's extremes that are happening. Sure. Like, and I realized that, that it was okay to have the feelings that I had. And, uh, she didn't make me feel better that like, it's okay to be ap- I guess, apathetic to it. Yeah. I, I think when you talk about the extremes, I, the, what I, what I hear and how I felt about it. Cause I was also very skeptical. I went into it as a I looked at myself as like an investigative journalist and I was going to figure out what was up with this program. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, I yeah. don't think this is for me, but let's go ahead and see. I'm going to ask some questions. Sure. I'll take your book, but uh, I don't know, man. So let's just see. Um, but those, those extremes and the fanaticism, I don't, what I have come to find is that I'm looking for contentment, right? I'm looking for some sort of easy, soft middle, right? And so that fanaticism, which is very exciting and the pink cloud and all that stuff is not sustainable because it does eventually go away. Yeah, Um, where our brains aren't programmed mm -hmm. that way. And in a weird way, for just my opinion, it feels like some people also treat 12-step programs as their, it's like, can be addictive (laughs) as well. Like there's people Mm -hmm. that are nonstop going, but like whatever keeps you sober, I'm all right. for that. And it's weird because I have to say with all the stuff that I've tried, I'd have to say 12-step program worked the best. And those 12 steps are actually really effective ways to live your life. It's a really great yeah. spiritual program and it keeps you Cause it is, it's like, you are really, it, uh, it's great on like, I could be resentful, but it's really great when you take inventory and realize that you play a huge part in your yeah. sobriety. Like you are not as much of a victim as you think you are. Like you're the common denominator, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. so to realize that, you know, it made me, uh, let go of some really deep resentments towards people in my life, realizing like, you know, oh, I chose to be around these people because, you know, that's how I felt about my life. And it's not their fault that I was fucking up. (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, and it's, they were dealing with their own shit too. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, I, when you talk about victimhood and, I think, I think the only exception for me 
is that, uh, and, but I, I don't, I don't have the excuse anymore is that when I was a child and dealing with the, um, growing up with an abusive alcoholic father, yeah. um, I didn't have any agency in my life when I was a child today, I do have some agency to look back on those traumatic events and to process them in a healthy way, at least try. I don't, I don't always get there. Right. But at least I yeah. am making an attempt. And so that's, I think that's the difference is that, you know, I, I wasn't, I was a victim then I don't have to continue to be one today. Yes. And again, also, like you said, if it's, if it's 12 step or whatever it is, that's keeping you sober and you're fanatical about it, keep doing that. Don't, yeah. there's no judgment on those people. No. Um, cause I need to know that they're going to be there because I need whatever, a little bit of whatever they have at that moment sometimes. Oh, you absolutely. Know? <laughs> I mean, it allows you to have compassion. I think, mm -hmm. um, also reading all those stories, like, don't you think it's so crazy that somebody from like the early 19th century was having the same resentments that you were having? It's so fascinating that it's a wildly different time. And these people are having yeah. the same problem that you're having. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that some things do not change as people in our brains and in our hearts and, you know, and um, to be able to relate to that because, and there's plenty that is currently in my mind, unrelatable as well, because it's almost a hundred years ago, which is insane. But when yeah. you read the stories and you're like, oh, I know exactly how that person felt. And that person hasn't been alive for decades. Yeah. And so it's, it's pretty impressive what was, what was built and what was constructed. And I mean, make up your own mind about it um, if you're interested, but um, yes, I would agree with you there. 100%. Yeah. And then like, we, you know, listening to people's shares also, you hear yourself and every, everyone that's talking. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating to be like, oh, I mean, we have such wild different backgrounds, but yeah. the feelings are still there. And like how you got here is very similar to mine. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. alcohol has been doing its thing for a long, long time. And, <laughs> yes. and I, 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 again, I, I don't, and I don't want to have any judgments toward alcohol because right. It is an inert substance that just sits on the shelf until I yeah, it didn't drink do it. Anything. Yeah. Right? I didn't do anything. Um, but it's always like, and I have friends who drink and I have friends who I had a friend who came over the other day and he brought over a bottle of Jameson and he's drinking his Jameson and I have my lemon water or whatever. And that's fine. And he's like, can I just leave this here? And I was like, sure. Like, and I live in a house with people. Um, and there's, there's plenty of booze in the kitchen. Like I've been here for six years and um, like, it occurs to me every once in a while, I guess I could just do this and nobody would know. And well, but for yeah. how long, right? I yeah, mean, eventually yeah. it would come out in some way or another. And I would yeah. always know. Well, there, yeah, there's definitely like, there's the fascination of how would I deal with this now? Do you think I have it? Like, mm -hmm. I, I consider those like weird, I guess, kind of like intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It's just, it is fascinating. You're like, I could just down this and nobody would know. Nobody would know. I could drink all the gin that's in the freezer and nobody would know. <laughs> yeah. It would be awful. So yes. I don't do it. And so I have the, I now have the wherewithal to go, well, you could, and then you'd be hungover and then you'd have to replace the gin, which means you'd have to go to the store and buy another bottle, but you'd have to drink it down to wherever it was here. See already I'm like getting insane with right? something that hasn't happened. Yeah. And then so. you realize how much of a pain in the ass all those addictions were mm -hmm. to deal with. Like, it's weird. I still have drinking dreams and it's not the dream. The anxiety of the dream is not that I had a drink. It's the secret of holding, of being like, I drank, but nobody knows. <laughs> it's What's weird. your, what is your sobriety date? Uh, July 28th. Okay. And you said 12 years sober? 12 years. That's awesome. Congratulations. I mean, that's, oh, thank you. that's huge. Um, it's just fascinating to say that, that 12 years on because drinking dreams are usually reserved for those first, I don't know, nine, 10 months or something like that, or maybe the first year and a half sometimes, I think. And so yeah. it's more about keeping the secrets 
Yeah, I don't, it doesn't have, it's not like a lot, but it happens enough that I'm like, huh, that's really mm -hmm. weird. I wonder what that's about. Um, if I need to be honest about something. That it's a manifestation of something else, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your brain is pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is for sure. For sure. Um, well, I, and, and so that's that 12 years, it seems to be working pretty well for you. Um, I mean, and it's, it's a, uh, it's something that's sustainable that you have found a program, not just in this particular 12 step program, but just a program for life, right? Like you said, it's, it's something that everybody could relate to. I don't think you need to be, I think if you remove yeah. the word alcohol, and even if you remove the word God out of that book, you could probably find something for you. Yeah, that's weird. I always talk about, I wish more people who don't even have a drinking problem. It sounds weird, but to be like, I wish they could do a 12 step program. There's mm -hmm. something nice about like, Hey, I don't know. And even when you're sober and going to a 12 step program, you also over the years, build up your own. You got to read. Sometimes you have to do those steps all over again. I don't yeah. think writing down an inventory and seeing what your part is in it. Cause you, there's all kinds of complications or you know, things that you deal with in your life that you're like, uh, what's my part in this? Yeah. 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 But it's definitely the 12 steps and therapy are like things that I definitely try to apply to my life to make my life easier and healthier. What is at this stage in your sobriety and your recovery, something that you still struggle with? Um, I think comparing myself to others is a huge problem that I have. I can't, I don't know how to stop it. Um, I also feel like I carry the burden of being responsible for other people's feelings and it makes me feel yucky. Yeah. And I wish I could just let that go. And I probably a form of self-centeredness, I think and I need to work on stepping out of myself a lot more. Um, like yeah. this morning I wrote a gratitude list cause I felt like <laughs> I was getting into that dark place and I feel like it's good <clears throat> to write down the things that are good. Yes. In your life. Yeah. Yes. I've said this repeatedly and I'll say it again. Um, writing things down has been instrumental and crucial to my daily sanity and sobriety every single step of the way. Um, yeah. You know, and whether it be gratitude lists, which I think is a really good um, concrete way of saying, okay, good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing. Cause we are, I think our brains are, especially now in the, the, the era of social media and, you know, grievance politics and anger and resentment everywhere. Our brains are kind of like wired to find the bad stuff out because we want to protect ourselves, right? We're trying to yeah. stay out of harm's way. And so writing those things down, which I have been told in the past sounds, um, people have told me they're like, yeah, gratitude lists. It's kind of silly, kind of corny. And I'm like, so what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Do it anyway. A lot of great stuff is so corny. Like you should, mm -hmm. people need to get over the cheese ball of cliche stuff. You're like, I don't know, maybe it's cliche because it, it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, and then lastly, if there's, if there was advice for somebody who maybe was struggling today and said, Hey, Sarah, I'm not really sure. What should I do? What would you suggest to them? Well, I don't, you know, I never want to push a 12 step program on people. Mm -hmm. I, so I don't, but I would have to say some of their literature, I thought was pretty great that I liked in the beginning. I liked living sober. So I feel like that one's not a push towards uh, the program. It's just right. like a nice uh, supplement, mm -hmm. a side book. And it, I, that really helped me of like, Hey, like, just be nice to yourself. This is really hard. It's, it's hard to, <laughs> I think we're too harsh on ourselves and you can always start over 
Like mm-hmm. as long as you're where doesn't mean you failed because you had a drink. I think we're just too harsh on ourselves. So that, and, uh, I don't know. Mm-mm. I don't know. It's really hard. Like you don't want to push up. I don't want to push a program on somebody. So, well, we both know it doesn't work, right? To push it, it on, them. it doesn't work. But I think that that's really not <laughs> that great. That's a great quote. Be nice to yourself. This is really hard. Yeah, I think that's 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 beautiful right there. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that's awesome. And I also I wanted to say the poster behind you to your right, the After Hours movie. I love it, that movie. <laughs> it's been a very long time since I've seen it, and I saw it as a child, and since then, and it's always been one of these sort of weird, bizarre, beautiful, just awesome movies that I've always enjoyed whenever it would yes. like come back when we used to have cable TV and it would come on and I would be like, Ooh, I got to sit down and watch after hours. Yeah. That <laughs> one you're like for Scorsese movie. It's one of my favorites. That's right. It is a Scorsese movie, which makes no sense, but I know it well, it's quite a departure from like a lot of his other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a great, uh, like a journey move. It makes it's, I find it relatable, especially like when we were talking about drinking, there were nights where mm-hmm. you're like, I got to get home. You're like, how the <laughs> hell did I end up in a trailer in Sugarland, Texas? Like I have to get home <laughs> and the yes. weirdos that you're hanging out with. Yes. So you're like, who are these? It's a journey. Your nights yes. would be a journey. So yes. I always relate to that. This movie is like a uh, a great uh, analogy for drinking. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> um, well, that's, thank you so much for this. Yeah. It was awesome. It was great to to talk to you and meet you and get to know you. Um, where can folks find you online in person and otherwise, if they want to? Um, hmm. Yeah, just follow me on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. My handle is the same all across the board. It's at Stalamash, which is my first initial and my last name. And then I always put dates on there and little tidbits, sketches and stuff like that. So that's where you can find me. Awesome. And you said you have a YouTube channel too, right? I'm going to have to go check that out. Yeah, I do. I have my, my special is out. It's a bare bones special. Um, I shot right before the pandemic and then I released it on my YouTube. So you can check it out there. It's just Sarah Talamash. I think if you Google it or just search for it in the search engine. Awesome. Sarah, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You bet. All right. All right. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) Bye. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah.